It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. All right, first question without further ado is from Plastic Funnel. That's quite the name. Is your answer to coping with the feeling of being a fraud uh, in your answer, that makes a lot more sense, in your answer to coping with the feeling of being a fraud, you sound like a madman in your hunger to learn on a, long, on a long enough timeline you will win. But where do you draw the line between a self-reinforced delusion that is strategically useful and not useful? It's a great question. Um, so this is something that you have to get really good at, being able to hold two competing ideas in your head at the same time, being able to feel like, I really have this, I've got it, I know what I'm doing, I'm moving forward full steam ahead, and checking yourself and making sure that that confidence isn't spilling over into destructive delusion. I won't even say to monitor it just to make sure that it's not spilling over into delusion because almost certainly, if you've never done something before, to believe that you can is pure delusion. To believe you can learn, on the other hand, is not. But that's where you've got to have that balance. You've really got to believe that you're going to pull this off, that you're going to figure it out, that somehow, some way, that you're going to be the one that figures out what nobody else could figure out. And I'll say that really is delusional, statistically speaking, certainly. And you have to then check that against, okay, where, where is the, the borders of usability here? It's good that I'm thinking like that. It's good that I have the energy. It's good, and this is the most important part, that I have the willingness to act decisively, which is where most people fall down. But you really do have to then check yourself and say, okay, where are my points of weakness? And what I find is <clears throat> a lot of times what you need over here on the I can do this side is uh, a quiet self-belief that's inside you. You don't have to trumpet that a lot, but you need that quiet self-belief. What you need to get other people rallied around you is they need to see decisiveness. They need to see certainty. There is so much intoxication to certainty. So now we've got those things. We believe in ourselves, our ability to learn and adapt. Cool. Our team believes that we, that we believe we know what we're doing. Awesome. And they can get excited by that certainty, the clarity of vision. They know exactly how to execute. There's no ambiguity. There's no confusion. Those are the things that kill teams. Then, on the other hand, we have an ability to very clearly articulate to ourselves, if nobody else, but oftentimes I do involve the team on this, to articulate to ourselves what our weakest points are and what the parts in the puzzle that we're trying to solve for. Now, the reason I'm able to involve the team in that is because they can see that I'm not wavering on my certainty of what to do. So I'm saying, do this, go here, talk to this person, say this, get that, think about it like this. Then over here, I can say, okay, and now we're going to flip it over. We're going to look at the underbelly of the strategy and see if we're actually right. And I'll walk people through my logic. Now, this is where if your logic isn't sound, your team is going to revolt. So my thing is by the time I'm talking to the team and certainly by the time that I'm revealing my soft underbelly, I have thought about this so much that I really, really 
have the issue conceptualized. And as long as there's a logical through line in my um, plan that the team can hold on to, they'll go, okay, I dig it, his logic makes sense, and the punchline of his logic is go do this for now. We're gonna revisit it, we're gonna come check back. So there's a self-awareness in the process of knowing I could be wrong, I'm always gonna be checking myself, I'm gonna be looking to see if those things that I'm telling the team to go do, if they're actually revealing or giving us results or not, and if they're not, then we're going to adjust strategy. And because I've told everybody where we're at, but I've kept everybody focused with the certainty, the clarity, the decisiveness, then other voices can be heard. We're constantly looking and checking at that. But this process of doing what they call red team, blue team, where you're actively trying to pick holes in your um, the, the way your plan, what you're actually executing, those voices have been in the mix. They feel like they're being heard, and that's another critical part to keeping the team going. Okay, so there it is. All right, Ray Paulus. How do you limit yourself, especially to new opportunities? Oftentimes, I get overloaded with the responsibility of each new opportunity. Okay, 80% of business is knowing what not to do. That's the really hard part. (coughs) Most people have no dearth of opportunities, and I think that that has certainly uh, been true in my life. I think that that's certainly true for most people. The real hard part is being in that room with a thousand doors and knowing which doors to close. So you have to get really good at creating certainty, at being decisive, at being willing to take a step. And (coughs) when it comes to that, honestly, the thing that I've noticed most is just a willingness. (coughs) I'm trying to survive the tail end of an illness here. The willingness to make a decision, even when you don't have all the information, that's really where we separate the people that go on to win from the people that just stand still. Because remember, the most data-rich information stream is action. Whether that action is a win or a loss (coughs) is somewhat irrelevant. The whole point is you have to be moving forward. You have to be acting decisively because that gives you that data-rich information stream. Most people are so terrified to make a mistake. They're so paralyzed by indecision because they don't know which is right that they never make a decision. They never hit that data-rich stream and they don't learn very fast and so they move 10 times, 20 times, (coughs) 100 times more slowly than the next person who's willing to act, who's willing to make mistakes, who's not afraid to look stupid. So that's the key. As I'm sure you've heard said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I will modify that and say the only thing that we have to fear is indecision. Man, this cough is like really messing with me. All right, I had to give a talk today at Google. And for the first like 10 minutes, I sounded just like this, like I'm dying. And then it wears off. So let me just bear with me. I'll make sure I give you nuggets of gold. Yeah, Connor is going to hate his job today. All right. Next question, David Beer. I have a question about how you research people. You, (coughs) God, (coughs) you mentioned how deep you go understanding their world, but how deep do you really go? Specifically, what is your (coughs) step-by-step process, I'm laughing at myself here, and how much time do you spend on it? 
All right, so I really do go deep, and I spend probably average 10 to 12 hours on a main episode guest that's reading their book, it's watching all of their videos, (coughs) and doing all of that, the key thing that I do, and this is where, there's really two things that I do that I think really separate my style. Number one, I follow my fascinations. And oftentimes, my fascination will lead me to look up something really obscure. (coughs) And in doing that, I stumble upon oftentimes like a real piece of humanity. And that's where people really, really end up connecting with the guests. And certainly, that's where the guest ends up connecting with me. And don't underestimate the power of the guests connecting with me and then being willing to lower their guard. And that's why a lot of times people say that I get something out of people that other people don't because the guest feels very safe. And that, that's a really critical part of my interview style. So um, <coughs> one example of this was with um, Seth Godin. And I came across this tidbit where he said... Um, I once cried when um, Leonard Nimoy died. And I thought, whoa, that's so weird. Like, what would make him cry about that? What is that? And so going down that rabbit hole and trying to figure out what his relationship is, reading some of his blog articles around that, around characters, narration, uh, the difference between Star Wars and, um, and Star Trek, And you really start to get an understanding of where he might go. Now, I don't always live by the following maxim, but this may be one of the most important um, things. (coughs) If you're trying to copy my interview style, one of the most important things to know is I try never to ask a question to which I don't already know the answer. Now, hopefully it doesn't feel that way. Hopefully it feels very spontaneous on set. But the reality is I'm trying to take the interview somewhere. And when it's something that really fascinates me, I want to understand why they say that. And the reason I understand why they've said the saying that fascinates me, (coughs) the reason I need to understand that, excuse me, is because I need to know if their answer is going to be valuable to you, the audience. That's, That's huge, right? My obligation is to you guys. My obligation is to figure out how do I take this person somewhere where they, A, haven't already said that thing a thousand times, and then B, that when you hear this new piece of information that they have, that you're actually going to be interested. So I'm always looking for things that you guys can adapt into your own life. And whenever something is an operational level belief system, then I'm really excited. So In a nutshell, those are the things that I'm really trying to do. I'm trying to follow my own fascination to make sure that I'm really interested in what they're saying so that I can be super authentic on set, that they will feel (coughs) that they will feel really heard and understood. (coughs) Connor, you're gonna have to cut all these out, man. It's just getting fucking crazy. Not yet. Um, so I want them to feel heard and understood. I want there to be a real connection. I want to be going a layer deeper than anybody else. And I want to know, I know how they're going to answer that question so that I can follow it up with another question. Or if they say something, um, and it takes us into new territory, maybe even my response catches me off guard on set to something they say, and now we go somewhere new, um, 
then I know how to bring it back because I know all the areas that I want to touch on because I really have a 360-degree view of the person. All right, so I think that's enough on that. Jenna Robinson, I'm currently reading Mastery, and there's a part where Robert Greene says, in your 20s, you should go through an apprenticeship phase. Does this contradict your idea of having a super specific goal where you can map out every zigzag? How would you do that when you're in this experimental phase of your life, when you're trying to figure out what career you want? (coughs) So it doesn't contradict it. They're just different parts of your life, different times in your life. And the, one of the most powerful parts of the mastery phase is that you've really identified what you want to do. And once you've identified what you want to do, going and working with the master is one of the ways to really rapidly gain the skills that you need. So there's two parts. There's the exploratory phase where you're not sure what you want to do. And I wouldn't try to prematurely optimize by going down the path of gaining mastery. I would just try to experience a lot of things. I would play with them. I would dabble and see which one really strikes your fancy. Once you know which one really strikes your fancy, you're super interested, that's the path you want to go down, you've maybe even begun going down the process of gaining mastery already, and you realize, I love this. I love this enough to put in the work. I believe in what it's going to bring to me in terms of what mission it's going to allow me to accomplish. Then you go and engage with the master and you pour yourself into that study and working with them. And in doing so, they're going to shorten your learning curve, which is incredibly, incredibly powerful. So um, spending your 20s in that phase, if you've already gotten to the point where you know that's what you want to do, then that's amazing. If it takes you into your 30s, so be it. But before you start optimizing, which is what you're doing with the master, you want to make sure that you first know that that really is the area that you want to go down. All right. Day-day. Many people do not execute on their goals because they lack a clear vision of all of their pathways to success. How did you go about finding options C and D instead of just choosing A and B? Um, That's not really how I think about it, if I'm honest. So what I do is I play a game called No Bullshit, What Would It Take? And I try to work backwards from success. And I say that I'm working backwards in a slightly different way than I normally mean it. What I'm talking about is I find a path where anybody you tell would be like, yeah, well, 100% that would work. No one would do it. It's crazy. It's not technologically feasible. Whatever thing they say then after that. But yes, if you could do that, that would work. Like if I said you had to commute, um, you know, 20 miles in LA and you had to do it in less than 30 minutes at rush hour. Well, what would you do? You would have to fly in a helicopter. Everybody would say, yep, (coughs) that would work. You can't afford it, but that would work. And then you can work backwards from there and you see people doing things like building drones now. They carry a single person. They worked with the FAA to actually get them legal. (coughs) So That's how something like that is really going to work is somebody started from, well, I know what success looks like. Now it becomes, how do we make a feasible version of that rather than what most people do, which is think of where they are today and think how impossible it would be to get there in their car. They first started a car and then they start thinking maybe they would do a motorcycle. Okay, that's working from failure and trying to work forward. Instead, work from success, something you know, guaranteed home run, it works, and then look at what are the things that stand in your way. (laughs) And if some of the things that stand in your way, in the case of a helicopter, cost, then it becomes a question of can you reduce the cost of that method. So uh, we talked about this before we started Quest. 
how would we end metabolic disease? Well, we knew if we could make food that people chose based on taste and it happened to be good for them, then it would work because we'd be leveraging people's um, own behaviors against them, their desire to um, eat hyperpalatable foods, uh, packaged, convenienced, well-marketed, all that stuff. That's what's driving eating behavior. So if we could take advantage of that and then just slide in something that was actually good for you, then we really had a shot. Doing the same thing here at Impact Theory, I know to get the average person to adopt an empowering belief system, it has to come in the form of entertainment, has to be somewhat invisible, it's got to be baked into the cultural subconscious, and that over time, people just begin to think like that. So um, that's why we're doing it that way. So more than I'm, you know, I'm thinking, uh, oh, here's path number one, I'm thinking, what's the most real, what's the most realistic, plausible path? And then, does it meet other criteria? Can it be monetized? Am I going to have fun? Am I passionate about both the path and the goal? So all of those things play into it as well. All right. Josh Moranian. I realize that I don't have a super specific goal, but I have a clear vision of what my goal looks like. I know I am going to be leading a team company in an industry I'm passionate about. My question is, how can I specify my goal without limiting my paths to get where I want in my career? How can I specify my goal without limiting my paths? Yeah, so <clears throat> the the problem is you don't actually know what your goal looks like. So this is the 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 quintessential question I get asked is somebody who says that they have a clear vision of their goal, but then what they describe is something as super vague as, I know I'm going to be leading a team company in an industry that I'm passionate about. Okay, please understand that is a hopelessly vague statement. Like that is vague in the most aggressive way possible. And it's the vagaries of that that then create the problem. So because you don't know what to execute against, you don't know what kind of products to make, you don't know who your consumers are. So when doing a business, when doing anything in life, you, you really have to get down to the level of just absolutely ridiculous hyperspecificity. So the example that I always use is of the Olympics. The, uh, the goal that you have is as vague as saying, I want to win a gold medal. So first of all, you want to win a gold medal in what? The Olympics? Okay, cool. You want to win an Olympic gold medal. Winter or summer? Okay, summer. Tennis? Swimming? Like, what is it? Swimming? Okay, great. Do you want to do the breaststroke? Do you want to do the medley? Like, what exactly is it? Until you know the very specific event in the sport in the games that you want to play, you're not going to know how you should train. And at the end of the day, it's the training. It's the acquisition of skills. That's really what you're trying to get down to. That's why you need the hyper degree of specificity because without that, you can't A, drive forward. You can't acquire the right skills. And B, if you don't know exactly where you're going, then you'll never know if you're making progress. So when you have a goal that's super vague, like I want to drive around in my car. Okay, great. Like, You're driving around in your car. Now what? You don't know whether you're going in the right direction. You don't know if you're making any progress. So you really have to pin this stuff down to a just an insanely clear and specific place. Once you have that, then you'll know what you should be training in and whether or not you're making progress. Steven Schrembeck. I've been working on Ray Dalio's Radical Truth Principle for two months now. But radical transparency is a huge hurdle. How do I practice radical transparency without pissing off everyone in my life who doesn't get it? 
Do I need to ask permission to be honest? Is that good enough? I will say that this is near impossible to do with everyone in your life. If people don't buy into it, it is absolutely not going to work. One, Ray Dalio's principles is written within the context of people who have agreed to be a part of a team. So whether it's at a job, I think you can get people to agree there. If it's in your immediate family, you can get people to agree there. But once it starts going farther than that, like unless you have... Um, a soccer team or something where you can actually get people to come together, you can present the idea and see if they buy into it. Um, It's pretty hard to abide by Ray Dalio's principles without people actually buying into that. So that's first and foremost. It's got to be applied to a group that will actually buy into it. it. It really won't work. It'll be totally dysfunctional for you to just try to do it. Now, you can live your life by principles and you can be radically honest and transparent about yourself. You can even decide that you want to be radically transparent with other people and you can train them to only ask you questions if they really want to know the truth. But what you've got to ask is, what do you hope to get out of that? Because if people haven't bought in to radical transparency, you will come across like a jerk. It won't be read well. Chances are they're going to diminish the um, frequency with which they invite you to be a part of their group. But if you're okay with that, if it's not groups that you want to be a part of, if you only want to be around people that are living in principles, then maybe that's perfectly fine. But you need to really think through exactly what it is you're trying to get And I would say that ultimately Ray Dalio's principles are specifically for people who are in a group that will all buy in. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're going to have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash impact theory. 
It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. All right, Mischief Co., I started an online business a year ago and things are going really well. Recently, sales have dropped to the point where I'm quickly eating my way into my savings every month. I don't know if I should quit this business and start a new one, go back to a nine to five or stick this out. What advice do you have for someone who's struggling with a rough time in their business? To me, this all comes down to none of those are wrong answers. So this all comes down to what do you really want? Like what's your identity? What's your mission in life? What are you really trying to accomplish? So... If that business is just a path on a way to a bigger goal that you believe in with all of your heart and soul, then it might be worth shutting that one down and starting something new. It might be worth buckling down and figuring out where you're going wrong, using austerity measures in your company, cutting off every ounce of fat, getting super lean, um, figuring out what's happened in the marketplace, pivoting, like finding that, solving that problem. If you're not emotionally hung up on the money and having to step backwards financially, like if you can really hunker down and solve that problem, could be beautiful. Maybe some of the most powerful lessons that you'll learn in business. Um, on the flip side, if you uh, didn't notice the changing in sales fast enough, that there's just a tsunami of debt on the business or something and you can't get out from under it, then closing that business down and starting something new with the fresh knowledge, maybe that's the way to go. But it really all comes down to what exactly it is you're trying to accomplish. I know none of these are easy and I know especially if you have debt in the business or you took money from friends and family or something like that, this can be incredibly, incredibly stressful. I'm not downplaying that, but just make sure that you're looking at yourself on a long time horizon, that you're not judging yourself through the lens of a moment and that you know what your ultimate goal is. And So if this business is a failure, but it teaches you something that you needed in order to actually get where you're ultimately going, and just to differentiate, like for instance, with impact theory, my mission is to pull people out of the matrix, to give them an empowering belief system. I think the way to do that is through social content and traditional narrative content. Should I find that that isn't right or that I'm not good at it and that I'm not able to do what I want from a business perspective with those two paths and I have to pivot at some point and do it another way? Hey, so be it. I'll take my losses. I'll figure it out. I'll regroup and I'll move forward again. But that all comes down to me knowing where I'm ultimately trying to go. I'm not ultimately trying to build the studio. That's a very fun way that I happen to think is the right way. But it's very possible that over time I learn that that's not true and that I have to pivot and do something different. Um, And it just so happens that I'm more passionate about the end result of pulling people out of the matrix than I am the struggle of building a studio. So building the studio is only worth me risking my fortune and all of that because I so believe in what I think it's going to let me do on a cultural subconscious level, embedding an empowering belief system. Um, So if it didn't have that, then I wouldn't be doing it. So that's where that plays out. So um, none of those are bad. Like going back and taking a nine to five, there's no uh, reason why you shouldn't. Like if that feels awesome right now and you're like so tired carrying all the responsibility on your shoulders and it sounds awesome to go find a company that you really believe in and they're really doing something you're passionate about and they're good people, like go plug in, man. That's amazing. This, this is a know thyself moment. 
And so just really take careful assessment of what your, um, what your identity is, what you want it to be, have compassion for yourself, and really plan for long-term fulfillment. Don't worry about whether that business was a win or a loss. On a long enough timeline, it's just really not going to matter. All right, next up, Ryan Jacobs. Hi, Tom. You're doing an amazing job with the show, especially your communication skills. Thank you. How did you learn to communicate so well? Were there any certain books or people that helped you learn how to use appropriate language in effectively communicating explanations or ideas to others? Um, first, of, yes. I mean, I've just read so many books. It'd be impossible to list them out here. Uh, but you can find my top 27 now, I think that it is, at impacttheory.com. Um, head there. And by the way, today's episode is brought to you by the Impact Theory logo shirt. So head to shop.impacttheory.com right now to pick yours up uh, and remind yourself through self-signaling of what this whole ecosystem and way of thinking is all about. Um, But yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of books. Like I said, the 27 are there in order that I think people should read them. Um, Beyond that, just an insane amount of practice and being willing to hear feedback. So I've been doing speech and debate since I was like 14 years old, maybe 13. Uh, Started in high school and just really threw myself into that. And you're actually getting judged and critiqued and you're getting feedback. And from the beginning, um, I just had to take that feedback. And then as I've gotten older as a leader, really accepting your losses, accepting things you really mess up, uh, allowing yourself to hear from employees how you could be doing it better, just always lowering your defenses, lowering your ego, hearing the hard things, um, being hungry to adjust and grow and get better. All of that is super key. So when you really want to know the truth, when you really hunger to understand what you're doing wrong, how you could be doing something better, that's when you're really going to start to win. So make sure that you actually want to know the truth because the thing that you have just forced into your life, the thing that lights you on fire emotionally is actual improvement. When you're lit on fire by actual improvement and all your dopamine and serotonin come rushing in as a result of actual improvement, suddenly you'll hunger to hear the truth, even when it's harsh. That's how you get better. Just practice, 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 practice. All right, anonymous. How do you go about removing people from your life who you feel are not in line with your principles and lifestyle? How do you wean them out of your life without being a total asshole about it? So my thing is, honestly, I just let space happen naturally. And space usually does happen pretty naturally. Um, Like everything in your life, if you want to build something new, don't focus on tearing down the old, old, focus on building the new. So rather than worrying about eliminating old friends from your ecosystem, focus on building new friends into your ecosystem. Go spend time with those guys. Fill your life with that, with awesome stuff. Um, And then it's up to you, like, exactly what you want to tell people. Um, Vanessa Van Edwards says that she thinks people should actually break up with friends and actually have the conversation and sit down with people and just say, look, I think we're in different places in our lives, um, and I don't think this friendship makes sense anymore. That never hit me well, and I think she is brilliant, but this is one place where she and I disagree. It just seems super awkward to me um, and unnecessary, and maybe this is a super dude thing, um, but the friendships in my life that have evolved into something else, I've just let them evolve into something else. And the reason that I do that is I never know, man. We could evolve back in the same direction again, and having made some big thing about breaking up with them just seems super weird to me. Um, so I like leaving it open, and maybe we'll reconnect. And plus, hopefully, um, at least in the people in my life, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of people still have love for. And so if we were to find common ground again, it'd be awesome. Um, So yeah, I just let time and space do its work. All right, time for one more question. Daniel Breeze. Hey, Tom, 
Did you, hey Tom, you mentioned that you finally figured out how to read while working out, how? So the key for me on this is there's only certain types of things that I can read while I'm working out. If I need to be taking a lot of notes, I can't do it. Um, So it needs to be something like uh, when I'm reading for somebody coming on the show because I read in swarms. So I'm not so worried about taking every little detail in. So if I'm doing a set and the set's really intense and I miss you know, 10 or 15 seconds of the book, not a big deal because I'm gonna listen to eight videos or you know, 15 videos on them talking about the book anyway. <clears throat> so I'm gonna get that information from a thousand different angles. So it's basically anything that I can read, podcast work for this, where it's like, it's a flowy conversation. So... As long as you're getting, say, 80%, you're getting most of what you want to get versus when I'm really trying to read like Ray Dalio's principles. I would never read at a first pass while working out. It's just too information dense and I want to take notes and you know I want to make sure that I'm really focused on it and really writing things down. Um, so it really comes down to things like biographies where it's not like I'm taking a lot of notes per page or when I'm prepping for somebody and, I, and thusly I'm reading in swarms or when I'm... Um, listening to a podcast, which is more conversational. One of the keys to maintaining a positive mindset is to stop worrying about what other people think. I go into great detail about this topic in the next clip. First question comes from Imani, Imane, Najari, one of the two. How do I not, how do I not to care? How do I not care about what people think about me? I know I should not care, but it's really hard for me not to, and it usually affects my motivation and productivity. Okay, so this is about getting a hold of your emotions. So I think all of us have a desire to be looked at favorably, especially by the people that we care about, that we respect, but you have to, like Viktor Frankl said, understand that there is a gap between stimulus and response. And in that gap, you have the ability to choose something as a way of reacting that isn't your emotions dictating that. So you're going to have an emotional reaction. When you do something and people disapprove, almost certainly, certainly happens for me, you're going to feel that sting of like, oh, that sucks. I really wanted people to be behind me. I really want people to cheer. I really want people to clap for me. That's amazing. But at the end of the day, you've got to be able to say, what is my goal? And what reaction to this stimulus actually moves me towards my goal? And that needs to be the thing that overrides everything else. So step one is having that clear goal, knowing what you're trying to accomplish. And then step two is the ability to assess whether or not your emotion, that which is the subconscious speaking to your conscious mind. So if you think of emotions as the subconscious, which um, processes data in a faster and vaster, as they say, fashion, meaning it can process a whole lot of information that your conscious mind would not be able to process through rapidly, and it can do it much more quickly. So it coughs up, instead of speaking in the language um, of that little voice you actually hear articulating words in your head, it's coughing up an emotion. So it's all of that experience, all of the things that our brain does to make sure that we protect ourselves, that we don't get ostracized by the group, which makes sense in an evolutionary context, but not so much in a modern context. That's why the subconscious is speaking in emotion. But you can take that emotion and say, hey, this doesn't make sense for my goal, feeling badly about myself, worrying about what other people think about me. It's only going to slow me down. It's only going to hold me back. I need to be able to trust my instincts, which I have trained, and now move towards 
what um, my goals demand. And so when you're able to do that, when you're able to read the emotion, check to see if there's a lesson to be learned, but if there's um, in wallowing in that emotion, if it's gonna move you away from your goals, then you set that to the side. And practicing that and getting good at that and filtering everything to your goal is how ultimately you're not going to um, spend a lot of time caring about what other people think. And so the savior for me has been the belief um, and the part of my identity which says I only do and believe that which moves me towards my goals. So obsessing over negative thoughts about what other people think doesn't, and so I just let it go and move on. And it literally comes down to what you allow yourself to think about. So just stop yourself using cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. Stop yourself from thinking about what other people think. All right, next question is from Jody Demink. Hey, Tom, I'm 20 years old and I've done some real soul searching over the past few years. I am certain that I don't want the conventional life and I want to do my own thing, but whenever I start something, I quit because I find I'm not really passionate about it, enjoying it, but I fear I may not just want it bad enough. How do I differentiate between being honest with myself and just pure laziness? Jody, this is an amazing question. And first of all, it is addressed brilliantly by... Duckworth, Angela Duckworth in the book Grit, which you guys are going to want to read that absolutely phenomenal book. And it breaks down how it's a very natural process to begin something, to be very excited. And then as you go down that process to realize, yeah, I actually don't like this. It's not giving me as much energy as I thought it would as taking energy away. And therefore, I want to give up and quit that thing. And she said, if you do that once or twice, like, hey, so be it. But if you're doing it every time, if you just love that initial rush, that excitement of something new, but the actual nitty gritty reality of getting good at it, of doing what Michio Kaku calls having butt power, meaning you sit your butt in the seat and you do the work, If that's really your problem and nothing is interesting enough for you to sit there and do the work, you haven't developed grit yet. And so grit is the ability to persevere, to see things through, to go past the point at which it has stopped being fun and it becomes boring because you believe in your end goal enough, you're excited by what you're trying to accomplish so much that you're willing to fight through all of that difficulty. You're willing to fight through the boredom. You're willing to fight through the unease that arises when you step outside your comfort zone. You're doing things you're not good at and things that are boring. Those are the two things that I find kill most people. They just cannot handle the things that make them go, oh, God, like I'm not very good at this and I'm feeling really badly about myself. And they forget that they can get good on a long enough timeline. And then two, inevitably, in any pursuit of greatness, in any endeavor where you're trying to gain mastery, you're going to get bored because practice is repetition. It's doing something over and over and over and over to really train yourself to get to the point where you're truly exceptional. And there's just so much boredom inherent in that process. So building in the resilience to see all that stuff through is the key part of grit. So, um, Take that, that's the nugget that you want to apply, but I would also recommend that you go and read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. It's phenomenal and she goes into more detail. All right, Alberto Garza, do I need to have a solid idea of the person I am today in order to be the person I want to become? Yes, I think that would be very powerful for you. The ability to accurately self-assess is incredibly powerful. Now, People that have the highest levels of self-delusion also have the highest levels of happiness, which is one of the great ironies of being a human. So 
this is advanced class shit, but you don't want to spend too much time looking really rawly at where you are and how bad you are at this thing that you're trying to do. But at the same time, you do need to be able to accurately assess where you are. Now, the key that I've found to being able to stare at nakedly your inadequacies is that you have to build your self-esteem around something else. But when your self-esteem is tied around this, it can be pretty gnarly emotionally to spend a lot of time looking at that, which is why people don't do it. But if you build your self-esteem around this little thing here that I'm doing with my fingers, which is the willingness to look at that, to get better, to sincerely apply yourself to getting better, to recognize that the only difference between who you wanna be and who you are is a set of skills and that you can acquire those skills, but first you have to understand where you actually are and where you're trying to go, and then be able to identify that chasm that you have to cross. And if you take your pride, your self-esteem from the willingness to cross that chasm, then suddenly you actually get self-esteem by looking at that, by assessing where you really are. And so that is one of the most powerful things anybody can do. So I highly recommend you guys spend your time there. All right, Daniel Breeze, the man, the ever contributor to Impact Theory. Thank you, Daniel, for your question. How do you deal with wanting to help those closest to you while knowing that until they take action, there's nothing you can do? All right, I'm going to quote uh, my boy Naveen Jain, and he said that don't worry about leading a horse to water, try to make them thirsty. And I thought that was brilliant because when somebody's thirsty, when they really want that thing, then they're going to go and do it of their own accord. You don't have to worry about leading them to water. Now, this is one of the most difficult things to do, which is to get somebody thirsty. Now, first, before I explain how to make them thirsty, I'm going to say that meet them with compassion. I wouldn't spend a lot of time and energy trying to change them or even try to make them thirsty. I think the vast majority of your time with the people closest to you that you love the most, you should just spend it loving them. You should spend it being happy to have a relationship with them, of being able to have themselves and yourself in good enough health to be able to enjoy each other's company. So even though I get it, trust me, I get it. I know why you want to make change. Spend your time just being compassionate with where they are. Now, if you want to make them thirsty, the key is to find some hook, some emotional resonance with them, something that they're excited about becoming, some goal that they're amped about having, some way that is pleasure-based to get them to go down that path because that's what that thirst really is. That's what that hunger to learn really is, is it's something that is grabbing a hold of the pleasure sensors in your brain and making you want to do it. And that's the key to anything. That's why people say stay hungry. They're saying you've got to still want that thing. You've got to be driven by something internal. You've got to be moving towards something and not just away from something. So that's really critical. And then I will say also that Find out what is that person's language. Do they naturally move towards things or away from things? Are they somebody that operates out of excitement or out of fear? What's their language of appreciation? How can you talk to them in a way that they're really going to understand and internalize? Um, But a lot of times, the punchline of all of this with those closest to you is simply live your life. And when they see you lit on fire, excited about the things that you're pursuing and you're not trying to preach to them, you're just doing your thing and they see it and they see how amped you are and you share that enthusiasm with them without trying to preach or trying to convince them of anything, you're just letting them see how excited you are, then over time, some of them will want that excitement in their own life and they will ask the magic question, which is how do you do that? And then you can give them a much more direct answer. But till then, I would say meet them with compassion and just try to show them your level of enthusiasm for what you do. Vipin Tiagi. 
What advice do you have for dealing with FOMO, for those who don't know, fear of missing out, for those in their 20s? I understand the necessity of the grind, but sometimes become distracted by thoughts of how I should be, perhaps devoting more time to friends, dating, etc. Since those things matter as well in life, how do I settle this in my mind so I am not constantly at battle with the two sides? Thanks. All right. This is super important. I want everybody to stop what you're doing. I want you to lean in and I want you to really hear me. And remember, this is coming from the guy that's like, do or die, do the fucking work. In fact, I think, yep, I have that shirt on right now. Today's episode is brought to you by Do The Work. Go to shop.impacttheory.com right now and get yourself signaling. Now, having said all of that, and I really do believe that because it makes sense in my life for what I want to accomplish and what I want to do, but the reality is there isn't a better way to live your life. There's no right way and wrong way. There is only the way that gives you more energy. There is only the way that gives you fulfillment. When you have those things, when you're fulfilled by what you're doing and it's giving you the harder you pursue it, it's giving you more energy, you're on the right path. As the Greeks would say, segolodromo, I can't believe I messed that up, segolodromo, which means you're on a good road. And that's what I want people to understand. Like, yes, I preach, a, or I preach a very specific path, but I don't think that it is a universal path. And so the only universal path is to do the things that give you fulfillment and energy. So if spending time with your friends gives you that, then you should be spending more time with your friends. If dating gives you that, then you should be dating. So you don't need to want to be the best in the world at something. You don't need to want to make a lot of money. You don't need to want to be an entrepreneur like all... They're literally just stand-ins. They're proxies for fulfillment and energy creation. That's it. So those are the punchlines of what's the meaning of life and all of that stuff. It is to do something that makes you feel a deep sense of well-being, which I'll call fulfillment, and something that gives you energy where you're literally excited to attack the day. That's it. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, Michael Richards. The Michael Richards from Seinfeld? Wow, that would be amazing. (coughs) For those wondering, I've contacted my doctor on this never-ending cough. (coughs) Excuse me. My friend, mentor, and I have been working together for about a year now, developing both of our passions further. Uh, It has always been a mutually beneficial relationship, but now he has asked me to come work for him full-time. How would you approach the transition to employee-employer? I would approach it with absolute raw and unadulterated honesty. 
People treat you exactly the way that you let them treat you. You guys are about to move into a very different dynamic in your role. You're going to want to know what your expectations are of them, what their expectations are of you. You want to have that all clear and upfront. You want to make sure that you understand um, how to communicate in this new role. You want to make sure that those channels are open so that if something starts to not feel good, that you guys are communicating it, you're not internalizing it. This all comes down to Ray Dalio's principles. Read that book. If you're both open to two things, these are the important two things, write these down. This should be the fundamental core of every relationship you have, business or personal. Number one, you need to be able to hear truth. And number two, you need to be able to speak truth. Those are the two most foundational skills that anyone should develop in terms of communication. You need to be able to hear truth and speak truth. Now, a lot of people can do one or the other, but not both. Some people have a very easy time criticizing others and telling them what they're doing wrong, but they can't hear it themselves. And other people can actually hear it. They don't mind that, but they have a really hard time communicating that to other people because they don't want to hurt their feelings or whatever. So make sure that you're able to do both. That is an absolute cornerstone of communication. So if you guys have that, you'll be just fine. Lucian Millet. How do I get over my block of I am never good enough, especially when my significant other has high expectations but does not support me in reaching those expectations? Okay, so we have two issues. So first of all, getting over your block of I'm not good enough, for me, the thing that absolutely destroyed all of that is my unflagging belief in one simple thing. I can learn anything. So I may not be good at that thing now. I may really not be good enough. Like when I think about building a studio to rival Disney. I'm not good enough yet. There's a huge chasm in skill set between me and Bob Iger and being able to do that. I fully understand that. And I have to do something different, which is found this, create all the energy, whereas Bob Iger came in way. I mean, they'd been in business for like 75 years or something by the time he came along. So it is a really intriguing skill set to be able to both build and create something, scale it, and then run it once it's big. So I know full well that I am not yet the person that I need to be in order to do that. And so my time and energy is spent in building that skill set. So I don't freak out over the fact that I'm not good enough, that's very easy for me to admit. I instead spend my time thinking about how do I acquire those skills in order to actually become good enough. So don't let your self-worth be tied up in that notion of good enough. Humans are the ultimate adaptation machine. From that, I derive my sort of um, high-level sense of worth that, hey, every human being has worth because they're an ultimate adaptation machine and they can become anything they want. That's just really cool and amazing. And then also, I just am deeply compassionate for the human condition. So... um, Yeah, regardless of where people fall on that path of actually executing against that potential, um, I get it, man. Being a human is both beautiful, amazing, all this potential, and it's really hard. So have compassion for yourself, which I think is incredibly important, and know that this is hard, and then believe that you can become anything that you set your mind to, and then just be honest with yourself. You don't have to want to be the greatest in the world. So whether you let somebody else apply those high standards to you or not is completely your choice. Just remember, it's a choice, and you're not not great because you can't be. You're not great because you haven't applied yourself to that. So that is uh, the key. For me, Like understanding that my life is an exact reflection of my choices is entirely liberating. So remember, your life is an exact reflection of your choices. If you want a different result, you simply need to make a different choice. Vantile Ianito. That's a name right there. Should I try executing from the start 
or should I learn to get to the level needed for mastery first? Ultimately, the question is experience or knowledge. So my advice is nothing, there is no more data-rich information stream than experience, than going and diving into it, trying something, failing, learning from that. So I never worry about whether or not I fully know how to do what I'm about to do, I go into it. However, I am trying to fiendishly get as much experience as I can as humanly possible. So like with comics, I knew nothing about it, but I was making a pledge long before I knew anything about it, hiring people against it, taking steps to move in that direction. But as fast as I could, I was learning as much as I could about the industry and I continue that education to this day. And that's been, that's a huge uh, first step for us in terms of building the TV and film stuff that we're doing. And so I'm doing both. I'm getting in it. I'm learning. And let me tell you that doing it is going to teach you far faster than anything else. Um, But I don't worry about whether or not I have mastery before I act. If you do that, you're never going to act. So I would say it's, it's really parallel paths. It isn't one and then the other. It's doing both at the same time. Brandon Alexander Carl. In the early days of your business, how did you deal with business debt and how did you fuel your success? All right, so in the beginning, you're really gonna have to be a direct seller, meaning if you spend a dollar, you need to get a $2 return on that. And so not taking in debt, if at all humanly possible, is my advice. Now, if you just don't have any way to start, um, then you might, if, you, if your business idea speaks to it and you know how to raise capital, then I would say go raise capital. And I wouldn't be overly sensitive about the ownership. I'd be way more sensitive about the control. That matters a lot to me personally. Maybe it doesn't matter as much to you, but that's a big deal to me. So if you don't have the capital, go get somebody else's capital. But that means that you really have to be passionate about the idea. You have to understand how to execute against the idea and you have to be willing uh, and able to convince other people that you're worth that investment. Now, if you're none of those things, then you're going to want to do something like affiliate marketing, which has virtually zero startup costs. You're leveraging someone else's product. You're even leveraging their sales infrastructure, and you need to only put up a website. Uh, you're going to have to create content, but that can be written content, so it doesn't have to cost you any money. But at some point to do a business, you have to be better than other people at something. And whether that something is social content, whether that something is um, SEO, whatever it's going to be, you've got to be better at other people than somebody. And that thing that you're better at has to lead to sales. There's just no way around that. But these days, literally, with no startup costs, you can start a business. And I'll give you an example. The one business I started that had absolutely no startup capital was Bill You Photography. It was, I think, the very first real business um, that Lisa and I did. And that was literally, I had a camera that I'd gotten for my birthday, and I took headshots with it. And that was it. And I charged people, God, back then it was like $300 for an hour session, which for me was like unbelievable. I couldn't believe I was getting paid that much. And so then from there, you learn very quickly, oh, but I have to go process the film and all that. And what does that do to my expenses, blah, blah, blah. So, but in all of that, I didn't need any startup capital. I was able to get it going and get it off the ground for nothing. And then later, I did some affiliate marketing as well. Again, same thing. It costs like literally, what, $8 a year uh, to buy a domain name. So, I mean, it's virtually nothing. And you can spin up Amazon Web Service anyway. I don't, I'm not going to get into the specifics. But there you go. Affiliate marketing if you have no other way. Jonathan Sereno. What books are you reading to understand the world of comics? Okay, so um, one, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Two, there's a book called Self-Publishing Comic Books or How to Self-Publish Comic Books and Not Just write them, I think is the exact title. It's very long. Um, it's by the guy who does Devil Devils Do Comics. I highly recommend that book. Uh, it is 
if you're into this business. Um, it is really informative and it would have saved me about $10,000 in legal fees had I read that a year ago. So uh, the most expensive book I've ever read. Um, but yeah, I would do that. I would listen to podcasts. I don't have the podcasts that I listen to memorized, forgive me. Um, but uh, hit me up socially and I can ping you with that stuff uh, if you have a continued interest. All right, Blake Reed, any advice on how to determine if your goals are super specific? Um, and getting feedback from someone on where you where uh, your plan might fail. Okay, so yes, I have all kinds of advice on this. So number one, figuring out if your plan is specific enough. If you know exactly what to do right now at this moment to take a very concrete and real step forward, meaning it's not thinking about something, it is actually doing something, then chances are that you have a very specific goal. Now, if you can map out all of the steps that you're going to need to take to get where you're going and that when you tell it to people, there's an internal logic to it. It may not work, by the way, but at least there's an internal logic and people are like, yeah, I get it. That might actually work. Then you've got a very specific goal. But if it's, and this is the best example um, that I can give. In fact, I'll give you an example. The, the one that I normally give is from the Olympics. And when people come and say, I want to I win a gold medal. Okay, a gold medal in what? The Olympics? Great. Summer or winter? You guys have heard me talk through that before. And it gets all the way down to exactly what event in what sport that you want to do it so that you know how to train. And that's really where that level of specificity. Now, an example from my own life. Okay, I want to make... Uh, I want to pull people out of the matrix, right? That's spiritually very interesting, but then I need to really define that. What does that mean? Okay, it's all about limiting beliefs. All right, I want to get rid of people's limiting beliefs and give them empowering beliefs. Okay, that's really specific. Now I can start to think about how do you do that? Once you know exactly what you want to do, I want to, in fact, I'll go even more specific because this is the truth. At scale, I want to be able to switch out limiting beliefs in somebody for empowering beliefs, even if they're antagonistic to change and a growth mindset. That's really the mission statement in my head, the one that I don't often articulate and I just say we want to pull people out of the matrix. So the keys of at scale, that it needs to work on somebody who is actively antagonistic to change and they're actively antagonistic to a growth mindset. How do I get them to have an empowering belief system? Okay, now that's specific and you can execute against that and it was very easy for me to step back and look at all that starting with how do people change their beliefs, looking at neuroscience and just seeing one answer come up over and over and over. Narrative. Okay, narrative. Well, if I know I'm going to be in the world of narrative, what are the areas of narrative? There are five uh, books, comic books, TV shows, movies, video games, maybe a sixth VR in the future. But right now, those are the dominant forms of narrative. I'm not saying there aren't other splinter factions, but those are the dominant forms of narrative. Okay, cool. And then breaking down who's doing that well. And there's now social um, content that you can publish that speaks to a lot of this. That's obviously what we're doing here. And then you've got traditional narrative content, uh, which is what we're doing on the comics and ultimately film and TV. And you can see, you just you start working it back. Once I was able to see, okay, I can create a plan of execution, I knew that my goal was specific enough. If I was like, oh, it starts getting nebulous in the middle of how I actually execute against that, then I would say I need to make my goal more specific. Blake Reed. Nope, that was the one we just did. Marie Baker. Do you journal? If so, do you keep to a specific topic and how often do you do it? I don't do what most people would call journaling. I did very briefly and I actually found it useful to be honest, uh, but I didn't find it useful enough to make it a permanent part of my morning routine. So um, what I do is I keep notes on everything. So every time I have an idea, I write it down, I write it down, I write it down. I'm obsessive about writing things down. And so I have two lists that I keep. One is called important things, ideas, 
which I like to then differentiate to important things. My important things list is what I should be doing. I should be executing against this. My important things ideas, those are things that like, hey, this might be interesting. I should really think through this more, that kind of thing. Or maybe it seems a little bit crazy, but I don't want to forget it. I'll write it on important things ideas. And then I'll go, as I chip away at my important things list, I'll go over to my important things ideas and see if there's anything that's matured enough that I can move it over to my important things list, which is pure execution. Um, so that's that. And then I write something on one of those two lists almost every day. I won't say it's every day, but wow, it's got to be 95% of days. And that includes weekends that I'm writing something on one of those two lists. Um, and that comes from largely really caring about your goal and then getting energized by what you're pursuing. So if the things that you do, if executing against important things, if all of that is giving you more energy than it takes, then suddenly it's fun to think about that stuff and you'll find yourself thinking about it all the time, all the time, all the time. Benny M. Oh, no, did I miss one? Yes. Dan G. Ingram. What legacy do you want to leave the world? I don't really think in terms of legacy, but I'll give you an answer that you'll take as legacy um, anyway, which is what's the impact that I want to have on the world. And that is I want to, at scale, pull people out of the matrix. So I want to give people an empowering belief system. I really think that that is what... um, I have built my skill set to execute against that will give me the deepest level of fulfillment. I absolutely love doing that. I love that it implores, uh, employs my understanding of narrative and psychology and all of that. It's endlessly fascinating. I love that I get to create social content, build community things. It just really, really means something to me. Um, so that's what I want to do. The reason I don't think of it as legacy is um, I'm not worried about something living beyond me. I and mean, that would be great. But the reality is I want to enjoy my time on this earth. I want to do something while I'm here, while I can experience it, that I think is value add, that makes me feel good about myself, um, that gives me that deep sense of fulfillment. Um, so because I think of it so much about the now, like I wouldn't do something that was going to be remembered forever, but made me completely miserable um, in my one go round here. So that's why I don't think of it as legacy, but I'm sure that answers your question. All right. Benny M. Uh, are video games a waste of time? I'm 48. I have been told all my life that video games are a big waste of time. I'm torn. They give me so much pleasure. But on the other hand, I can waste hours and hours gaming. Okay, so this comes down to goals purely. We started this episode by talking about there is no right way to live your life. So if you're playing games and you love it and it gives you a sense of fulfillment and you're exploring mastery and you just love being in that universe and it's helping you improve sets uh, your skill set, which it does me, um, and you love that, and it's making you better at something else you really care about, then I could see totally giving yourself over to that. Or if you love creating games and you have to play them in order to be able to go out and create something amazing for other people and you love that, then truly there's no conflict between playing games and doing what I think provides people with the most fulfillment, which is to build a set of skills that not only serves you, but serves other people. Um, If it is just purely a thing of pleasure for you, like doing things that you think are awesome, that you think are rad, like I totally get that. And building in time in your life to do that is, <coughs> is amazing. But if it's not helping you generate a deep sense of fulfillment and you're conflicted and you feel like, like sometimes where it's like, oh man, did I really just spend like six or seven hours playing that game? And oh, I feel a little bit icky about that. Then it's like, okay, it's it becomes a little bit like I think about drinking, which drinking alcohol is fun. It makes me feel like I'm suppressing the urge to dance on a table, but it moves me backwards from a longevity standpoint. And at the end of it, eh, 
I didn't really get anything. It was a very transient experience. So I do it occasionally, call it three or four times a year with my wife. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it, but I definitely limit the amount of time that I do it. So that may be where video games fall for you. For me, I spend video game time with my wife and my sister. We play as a fire team, so that's already fun. It's bonding for the three of us. And then second, it's huge for me in learning to calm my anxiety because it's the only thing that I can think of where it feels like they're really high stakes, but there's actually no stakes whatsoever. So your heart is racing, your anxiety spikes, and you can practice rapidly calming it down. So that's been a way for me to engage with video games and sort of kill multiple birds with one stone um, and keeps it from at all ever feeling like a waste of time. But I have rules around it. Like I almost never play by myself. I'm always playing uh, with my family so that you get that extra element of bonding. And then I really do uh, force myself to practice going out of the sympathetic nervous system into the parasympathetic. So that's my take. All right, Ricky Kasupinen. What should I do if things I want to succeed What should I do if things I want to succeed in constantly feel as if it's a competition? It feels as if it hinders me from finding value and improving myself. Hmm, I don't entirely understand um, your perspective on the question, but I will say this. Being a competition is not a bad thing, and I think that being willing to compete with others is a sign of confidence. It's a willingness to put yourself out there to really see if the skills that you're gaining actually have real-world utility or not. For a long time, I was afraid to compete with people because I thought I was just going to lose at everything, and I thought that that meant that I was bad and untalented, unworthy, all of that stuff, and so I just avoided it like the plague because I never wanted anything to make me feel like less of myself. Then I realized I can get better at anything at any time, and if I really care about winning at something, then I can pour myself into getting great at that thing. And if I don't care about that thing enough to get great at it, then just enjoy it. And whether I win or lose is pretty irrelevant. So I wouldn't be afraid of competition. Now you find that it hinders you from finding value and improving yourself because it has a competition. That's the part that I don't understand. So Ricky, if you want to send us in a little bit more clarification on that, I can go deeper. Otherwise, hopefully the first part of that answered your question. Dan Conrad, if you were creating a plan for personal development to be more intentional about growth, what would be some essential pillars and tasks to include and what metrics would you use to help assess your progress at each of your goals? Um, so really the last part about making sure that I have the metrics by which to judge whether or not I'm moving towards my goals is going to be the important part. And that's really how I judge my progress. So um, keeping a list of the steps that you're going to need to walk down in order to get where you're going. So like I'll give you a really uh, great example. So if I believe that film and TV is the ultimate way in which you can change the narrative and somebody who's antagonistic to that change, then okay, I know that I need to get to that point. It's very easy to assess every day whether or not I've got a TV or a TV show or film being made. Um, so we wanted a way where we could follow a traditional path so that it wasn't this binary all or nothing moment. So we want to start at comics. Comics is very easy to understand if I publish one or not. Um, and so we're able to march towards that because we can afford to do it. So I know I can create a comic. No one is going to be able to stop me from doing that. 
people can stop me from doing TV and film because the expense is so extraordinary that I'm not willing to just do that um, you know, without convincing others to join me in that endeavor financially. But comics, I can. So comics becomes that very easy road to get something across the finish line, to figure out whether or not it resonated, figure out whether or not we're building community, and then leverage that to pitch to film and TV. Um, so our belief is that if we get enough intellectual property at the comic book level, that we will be able to um, build community around that. And with community, I really believe we'll be able to get that turned into a film or TV show. So it becomes that very clear path of whether or not that I'm making progress on getting the comic published, and then it'll become the very clear path of whether or not I'm building community around that or not. And if it resonates enough to build community, then I know that I did something right. And if it doesn't, then I need to go back to the drawing board and start over and just keep replicating that process over and over and over until it works or until I realize that it's not my execution of the process that's flawed. It's actually the process itself. It's the very path is broken. Um, So that's it. All right. Last question. This is from Russell Regan. Tom, In a recent AMA, you described the emergency pamphlet for life consisting of two steps, which are step one, tell yourself empowering statements about potential, and step two, build accountability around that. Step one is a clear, actionable directive, but step two seems seems nebulous to me. Can you talk more about step two, give concrete examples of what step two looks like, and explain how to get from step one to step two? Okay, so I'm going to use different words for step two than you used, and hopefully this will clear it up. So step one is about what you say to yourself. Step two is about what you tell other people that you're going to do. So it really comes down to what you repeat. So what you repeat to yourself, human potential is nearly limited. I'm the type of person that will put in the work. I'm the type of person that gets out of bed in 10 minutes or less. I'm the type of person that judges myself by my results. All of that stuff. Okay, so those are all the things that you're telling yourself. You're repeating it over and over and over. You're solidifying that in your mind, literally from a brain wiring standpoint. So all of your beliefs are going to kick in when you mess up. Somebody says something mean, whatever. All the things that might otherwise emotionally knock you off. You're going to have what I call the mental pachinko machine, where any negative emotion or any negative thought hits all these beliefs until it comes out the other side positive. That that's the key. Now the second part is what you tell other people that you're going to go what you're going to do, and that triggers a process um, of uh, congruence where you want to act in congruence with what you tell people that you're going to do. And I find that also in doing that, you're repeating it again, and hopefully you're embodying it, which is a big part of it. So as you're telling people, you're allowing yourself to feel the excitement, which is why you want to do this thing. And so you're embodying that over and over and over. But it's all essentially that same mechanism. It's really hardwiring this stuff into your system. Um, that's, that's the foundational key is to really reinforce these beliefs and to trigger that process of congruence. That isn't going to get you across the finish line of success or anything like that. But those are like the two really foundational things um, in the, I don't, I don't remember calling it the emergency pamphlet for life, um, but this is the steps to really building and enacting a growth mindset. Uh, and I'm going to do it like the emergency pamphlet on an airplane, uh, which is where the emergency came from. So very simple um, drawings, very simple words, because I want people to understand that to, to really solidify a growth mindset in yourself, those are the two things you really need to do.